Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. So uh, we are here at the end of episode four week, and we are getting beginning to get ready uh, for episode five. Uh, so halfway thanks. Point. It's halftime, yeah. guys. It, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So um, um, and of course, this is uh, I'm 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 excited about episode five uh, because you may remember Maggie. That's what. The uh, Patrick and JD mentioned to us yes. uh, when we saw them in New York. Uh, well, they said five or six. So five or I six. Mean, there's yeah. Part of me that's like something big's going to shift in five, but it's not going to pay off till six. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. They were saying that this is when uh, things were going to sort of really heat up. So, um, uh, I, yeah. I don't. I, we don't need to dive right into this, but I was thinking about the structure of the show and. I feel like these are dual episodes. I'm not sure how you feel about it, but like one and two coming out together was necessary because there was right. so much content we needed to lay a foundation. I wish they had done three and four together because they felt so complimentary. Yes. Three left me hanging and four gave me so much more depth, which I'm sure we'll go into. Like, you know, seeing just Muriel's change from three to four was massive. Yes. And yes. if I'd had those together, so now I'm also wondering with five and six because right. they seem to clump that together in that statement. Right, right. I wish they had released two episodes at a time. <laughs> yeah, it's of course I've, I've you know I've heard people say also like you know I think probably season one would have been better if it had just dropped all at once so we could watch it all the way through. And I, I the only thing I can say I always I ever think in response to these things is just the mere like personal gratitude uh, <laughs> of like how much harder it would have been to to do all of the analysis <laughs> and, and think through all of this. An hour a week is is fine. <laughs> it's it's, it's fine. Anymore. Like an hour a week already makes over two hours of analysis for us for Rings and Realms, and an hour and a half of this, and an hour on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I don't even know how we'd pace things, you know, trying to figure out, you know, a whole season at once, but whatever. Um, anyway, yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I will be interested to see the relationship between five and six and four and five. You know, are we going in? Uh, because, of course, there was there was it seemed also in a sense, a kind of a not a gap. I mean, there was some continuity, obviously, between two and three. Um, you know, we got the continuation of the Harfoot story and Coadriel and Halbrand and Numenor. But but like now we're in Numenor really kind of felt like it began a new chapter there. Yeah. And uh, the end, I, obviously the end of episode four isn't like a culmination of the Numenor story in any sense, but I agree. It felt like the end of an arc, uh, you know, yeah. a little mini yeah. arc, right? Um, which and really did real start momentum, in three. Finally, you know, yes. like there's, a, there's been some threats, there's been some stuff, but all of a sudden like, oh, I think we're going to war, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And especially with the way that things are, you know, less um, less powerfully momentous or m m moment, uh, momentum, momentum, like <laughs> momentum ish <laughs> in 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 the Southlands. Right. Um, but uh, still like that, like that they're not yet under siege, but now they've, you know, they've taken refuge in this fortification and the siege has been promised right by Adar at the end of uh, at the end of episode four uh, so you know there's this sense of urgency right of the um, uh, of you know they're in the Southlands and now the the resolution you know at the same time we're getting the resolution to come and relieve them um, you know by the Numenorians led by Galadriel so yeah. um, there's uh, there's 
you know, there's there's some there's some correspondence here. But as you say, like we're getting we're getting some uh, some momentum. The, what I mean by less momentum in the Southlands was there wasn't that sudden shift, right, that we got, like where which which really had that huge forward impetus at the end of episode four. Um, yeah. Um, so by the way, so I I just had a thought this afternoon, um, and it was uh, it was in res- response, Doctor Nosy. I see you're here. In response to your tweet this afternoon, I I realized something. Doctor Nosy was asking about the. Um, uh, the momentum, the not momentum. We were just talking about momentum. Was asking about the Numenorians uh, and uh, saying that like it's it's harder to see, uh, to understand within the just within the context of the show, exactly why there's this all of this anti-elf sentiment in Numenor, right? Um, and I, I I hear that on the one hand, um, uh, and I want to talk about the Numenorian. Uh, sort of political situation a little bit more and maybe you know, talk about that and answer some more questions. But this question got me thinking in the direction of Galadriel and her leading the army and stuff. And I am... Um, I suddenly realized, because I was thinking back to Muriel, the opening scene in Numenor, right? When they come in and when they're brought in before Muriel and Ferrazon is there, right? And... Um, the first thing, the first like really uncomfortable thing that Muriel says when she says, um, "We were," you know, Galadriel makes her speech about how that you know the, the they were given the Numenorians were given this land, and Muriel says, "We were given nothing," right, uh, and emphasizes how they earned it, and so you can see the way in which you know right away, even before we get it much more clearly in Farazan's speech to the crowd in Episode Four, um, you can see the way in which they're sort of rewriting their own history, right. But here's the thing that I was then th- reflecting on about Galadriel. Galadriel's quite wrong. Um, when she talks to Muriel uh, in that scene, in the Palantir scene, the post-Palantir scene, right? Um, when she says to Muriel uh, that the, you know, the the turning back to like the faith of their, you know, fathers, that this is about their alliance with the elves. It's not about their alliance with the elves. That's actually not the point at all. And I, I realized all of a sudden, guess like surprise, surprise, Galadriel has been obsessed and with tunnel vision here this whole time. She keeps emphasizing that like in order for the Numenorians to be true to who they are, to be faithful, like what it means to be one of the faithful Numenorians is to be true to the elves. That is not true. It is to be, tr- it is to be true to their obedience to the Valar that defines the Numenorians, And that was made clearer with the whole Tears of the Valar thing, right? Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. speech, which was then recalled when the petals were falling at the end of episode four. Um, Yeah, it's not to say that she's like totally incorrect about their alliance with the elves, but that's not the cause. That's that's an element, right? That's how it was manifested. When the elves themselves were in... um, were in like alignment, right? But so again, once again, Galadriel, I said she was quite wrong and that's not exactly fair. Uh, She's like, she's been all the way along, not wrong, not like actually completely wrong, but obsessed, focused, and kind of missing the point in a lot of ways. Like she's, um, 
Uh, yeah, Dr. Nosy, exactly. Goadriel herself is disobeying her king. The tension that we see between Goadriel and Gilgalad, I'm practicing, and uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you, uh, and between Goadriel and, of course, her own troops uh, there, right, is a clear indication. And remember, we were getting, like, we got this kinslaying overlay with Galadriel from the very beginning, right? I mean, we saw that it was overlaid on the other kids, right? But let's not forget that it was Galadriel, juvenile Galadriel, who is the only elf guilty of violence against another elf in that whole sequence. I'm not saying that, like, you know, the Feanorian punk who sank her ship didn't have it coming, right? But I am saying, nevertheless, she was the one who was about to be guilty of the kin punching in the face there at the end of that episode. And that's... Kin punching in the face. Love that. it's not as bad as the kinslaying, kin right? Yeah, kin exactly. Slugging. Right. But still, I mean it's 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 there's 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 not there's a bunch there that's not right. And I think we can see it in Goandriel. Um in other words, Muriel just going along with Goadriel if she is to just go along with Goadriel, Goadriel is not leading her right. And again, this is the complicated thing with Goadriel's character. She's not wrong. Sauron is really there. Sauron is really a threat. Sauron is really a bad guy. Like, this is all true. Like, this is all, you know, and like, yes, let's go rescue the Southlands. Sounds like a great idea. Like, not a bad thing to do. And yet, Goadriel's perspective, you know, is, 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 is clearly skewed. And the thing that has been absent, people were noticing this. Remember, people were asking, like, why are there no references to the Valar in episodes one and two? Yeah. And my answer now is because we were mostly getting Galadriel in episode one and two. Notice as soon as we got to Numenor, they started talking about the Valar all the time. They're still around. Yeah. 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 Um, hmm. So uh, so anyway, I, I, I think that, um, again, it's she's not she's not a bad guy. She's not, you know, Galadriel, I mean, you know, she's she's she's. But there is there's still a lot of a lot of work that needs to happen I, 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 with her. I mean, in her, like, you know, there's not only her own personal healing as she's still clearly deeply wounded, but um, uh, her, her, her trajectory is not. Um, and it's interesting. I was talking to Tom Hillman earlier this week and he was, uh, we were talking, we were like comparing and contrasting Galadriel and Cassandra, the, of course, the Greek figure uh, from Greek mythology of the, the, you know, the, woman who was cursed to see the future and have nobody ever believe her, right? The one who was trying to tell everybody about the fall of Troy and nobody would listen, right? Um, but, uh, uh, and, and so there's certainly an element of the Cassandra story about Galadriel, right? That mm. we see, especially in that first episode. Um, and uh, and it's very moving when she says that to Muriel, you know, about like, I know what it is to be the only like one the who, only one who knows. the only one who knows, right? That was yeah. a, I, I thought that was a really, really powerful moment there. Um, so again, true, not, not kind of wanting to take anything away from that, but at the same time, um, she's, I think she's not seeing the whole picture in any way. And there are some things that she's going to be really, really incorrect about. Um, uh, I mean, we kind of touched on it last week, didn't we, about the unreliable narrator? Like, I think yes. we just have to keep that in mind that we are seeing such a tunnel visioned Galadriel that there's a lot of things going on in the world that we're just not paying attention to because we're only getting the news according to Galadriel. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, yes. And it's important for us to remember to remember that, I think, uh, I, I, in, in this way. That is, 
I find Goadriel the most untrustworthy character in the whole show so far, in the sense that like we we can't because it's so tempting to trust her. She's Goadriel, right? <laughs> I mean, like we're and by the way, this is another topic of my conversation. I had Tom Hillman happened to be uh, Tom Hillman and, and Lee Smith happened to be up here in New England, and I met them for lunch earlier this week. And we had this nice. long conversation, which is really fun. Um, one another thing that we were talking about in that conversation was. Goadriel in the Lord of the Rings is not as like benign and trustworthy as people tend to I mean there's a a lot that people I think misunderstand Um, she is she is on the um, to say it another way I think that Boromir is largely justified in almost all the things he says about Galadriel. Um, when he says, like, I'm not too sure of this elvish lady and her policies, right? Yeah. And then Aragorn responds by saying, speak no evil of the lady Galadriel, for in her and in this land there is no stain. I, I think, like, I'm on Team Boromir uh, when it comes to that. <laughs> like, uh, he, he's, like, I, I, Aragorn is wrong. Um, I mean, she's I got mean, a pretty hard edge. Yeah, she does. Yeah, she does. Yeah. And like, I get it. Like, you know, I, I, grandma-in-law, like, you know, she's 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 like the in-laws and I know what it is to, you know, like, bit with the in-laws when you're still engaged and whatever. Like, it's awkward, but seriously. but And I'm not saying Boromir is completely right, um, but I think he's closer to, to, the, to a, his assessment is a shrewder assessment of what just happened in their testing by Galadriel uh, yeah. than Aragorn's assessment. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, so it, there is um, there are a lot of things that are questionable uh, about Galadriel, even in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and I do think that it's one of the things that has made people feel um, that... I think that Peter Jackson's Galadriel was sort of more in touch with, was a good reflection of the way that people tend to read Galadriel. Um, which, by the way, not always the case with all Peter Jackson's characters, but there I think, I think, I think that that was. Um, but I don't think that that means that it's correct. Um, uh, I think that uh, I think that this Galadriel is really picking up on some fascinating elements, even of the Lord of the even of the Lord of the Rings Galadriel. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, but anyway, um, now again, I'm not saying Galadriel's bad. I'm just it's fine. Like she's good. She's a she's but she's good. But there is there's there are issues there. There are issues that she is working through at the moment, um, and even even she is almost a little bit surprised. When, um, uh, when she's like, I passed the test, right? Like it was not a given, yeah. even yeah. to her, it was not yeah. a given that she was going to pass that test. Um, but um, anyway, and she's always yeah. always had that self awareness that she could make the wrong decision. You know, like she's aware that she's a little bit fiery and bold and mm-hmm. impulsive. You know, all those things, which is part of the reason everybody loves her. But you do kind of forget the almost dangerous side of that and some yes. of the things that can come along with that and we have that to the nth degree because this is a younger very tunnel visioned Galadriel yes. that has not I don't know if it's anger in her heart at the loss of her brother but there's a definite revenge element you know for sure duty to be filled and that's a very different drive than the Galadriel we see later on absolutely absolutely and I still suspect that the um, the single-minded 
oath to hunt down Sauron that she claims that Finrod had taken um, is like a certain amount of like projection on her mm-hmm. part, you know. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to be really interested to see if we learn any more about that. But, um, well, that, uh, that, I mean, yeah. if I can segue, like one of the things I noticed about this episode was the continued arc of the women in particular that I thought yeah. really is, is starting to come into its own. I'm still really struggling with Bronwyn. So I would love to mm-hmm. hear your thoughts yeah. on that because I know yeah. you have a soft spot for her. But my first question is costuming because she is the only one wearing this bare chested spaghetti strap doohickey. And I'm just, I'm rolling my eyes at this point. Like, really? Like, it's trying to make her a sex symbol. And that's really bothering me because I'm seeing that instead of the character. And I think the character could be really cool. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm interested in that because I feel like she's like, on the one hand, I totally see what you mean. Like, there's a lot of bare skin with Bronwyn. She's the only one. Like, the only other, one like, with lots of bare skin. All are wearing sheepskin jackets, and she yeah, is yeah. wearing Get a that. spaghetti strap shirt. Right. Get that. However, yeah. when I look at her as a whole, like, I mean, her whole costume, I mean. Not her whole depiction, but, like, just her whole, like, I don't know, she's, like, sex symbol from the sternum up, but not from, the, I mean, like, the rest of her clothes are, like, burlap bags you know like and, and the rest of like tom tomboy too she wears like leggings you know yes she's wearing, yeah she's like, wearing like leather leggings underneath her like long right. flowing gown so like sex it, symbol tomboy angle yeah it's it's not yeah. if she were wearing like you know that top and leather you know tight leather pants or something i'd be like uh, okay right you know here we are um but again while I, i'm not disagreeing with you at all i mean it's it's very noticeable, right? All of the bare skin. And it's yet kind of an it, odd eclectic. Collection. Yeah, it yeah. is. I mean, I, I um I frankly don't really know what to do with that. And how much thought they put into costume. We know this isn't an accident. You know, they clearly had a conversation saying, Well, she should wear trousers so she looks, you know, competent like a man and can run appropriately and be this battle heavy person. But let's make sure her shirt is barely there. <laughs> Yeah, so we don't need to focus on costume forever, but costume tells you a lot about character, and I'm just really struggling that her character is trying to be this this cross of like boy next door, girl next door, tomboy sex symbol. Eh. When I really just want to see this girl who took the head off an orc and slammed it on a bar and said, "We gotta rise to power." Right. That's a cool woman. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I want well, to follow that arc. And exactly. And I mean, yeah. as I was talking about last week we can see her clearly taking taking on a leadership role i mean i mm-hmm. i loved that scene where she was being challenged by Waldreg, and she was like basically her answer she didn't explicitly answer the like you know who who put you in charge you know why are you making decisions yeah. um you know at, though her implicit answer is because no one else is, right? I she mean, she was... making the decisions. She was yeah, like, I don't she, even have to answer you. I'm going to keep working. Right. Yeah. She's she's sort of stepping up to do that. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, I, I that I liked as well. Um, though you can see that she's not... Um, one of the things that was interesting, if you look at the parallel or... 
we've got got lots of parent child relationships, right? Um, which have been under a lot of emphasis in the last couple episodes. And um, because the title of episode three got me focused on the fathers, which then got followed up with meeting Tar Palantir and uh, talking about a Lendl for like half the, or sorry, a Rendel rather for like half the episode uh, in episode four, um, I, I kind of kept my focus there. But I think in doing that, actually, you know, I've been overlooking, I've been not talking enough about Bronwyn and Theo as parent-child relationship, Mm -hmm. really kind of in parallel with these other parent-child relationships that we're seeing, right? And in particular, the thing that was just jumping out at me there was compare and contrast Bronwyn and Theo with Farazon and Kemen, actually, Mm. as the other father you know, father-son relationship I haven't talked about very much at all. Um, and we haven't, we, we've only got the one scene, right? We've got Kemen in a couple scenes, but we've got one Kemen Farazan scene, right? But that was a very telling scene. It definitely establishes, you know, very much a Faramir Denethor type vibe of like... Definitely. You are not satisfying me as a child, you know? <laughs> exactly. Because you are insufficiently ambitious, right? I mean, his... Uh, Farazan's clear prioritization over... Of like, you know, politics and and and, and yes, like amb- the word ambition was suggestive, right? That uh, Farazan is sort of in it for himself. But I'm sure if you asked Farazan, he would say and probably pass a lie detector test while saying it that like it's Numenor that he cares for, right? That it's yeah. it's 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 for the people. And I, I'm thinking of that because exactly what we see with Bronwyn and Theo is not that, right? Um, in, in a sense, what Theo did was the right thing to do for the people, right? To risk your life in order to, sac- in order to bring back food that might help to, you know, preserve the lives of, of, of you know, dozens and dozens of other people. Um, but she is like, you're not going, right? Because mm. she's thinking, first and foremost, as a mom wanting to protect her son, rather than as, you know, she's stepped into this role of civic leadership, leadership. right? With in, not in a, having that solution. Yeah. yeah, in her scale parallel to Farazan, right? But with the completely opposite focus to the extent that she's like, I'm going to leave everybody behind, I don't care, and go and chase after my son, right? When it's clear mm-hmm. that, and nobody else wants to come and help, obviously, you know, so she ends up going by herself. Um, I mean, we don't we don't see the scene of her departure. We only see her arriving, but we see her arriving alone. So, yeah. um, and we saw lots of unwillingness to go down there, you know, anyway. So that seems a fair conclusion but um anyway the the so she's clearly although she is taking up leadership she obviously prioritizes parenthood and theo over you know the yeah. good of the people right um whereas farazan is is very very strongly in the other direction yeah. um but um mm. uh, but i'm not sure of course the other element i mean one one correlation I can't. So I'm thinking about the costuming question again because it is it is a, a, a fair one and one I haven't kind of wrestled it through. So I'm thinking yeah. through it. It does stand out. But here's another thing that stands out: the correlation between the fact that uh, the one woman on screen who's been showing lots of skin is also the only one who's a romantic object uh, in the whole show yeah. so far. Yeah. Uh, right? No other. Well, Aarian uh, with doesn't... with Kemen. Um, Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, that's, that's like nascent dating. That's, that's it's, a little it is, and and it's and when it wasn't her idea. I mean, whereas like Bronwyn is clearly into Arandir, right? So we have a, like a reciprocated. Um, that's true. Uh, Praise points out 
Uh, one does have to say, Disa has shown a certain amount of skin at times too, That's true. <laughs> which is which is fair. Now, though, I, again, the difference there is that her her costume as a whole isn't like I don't know what designed to. Like, she did show a lot of leg when she was moving across the scene in that in that one place, yeah. right? But uh, um, the, honestly, that. Even like the sort of flash of skin that we saw sh- suggested to me most clearly, I don't care, right? Like yeah, this I mean, they're also modesty's like, not a not a like huge deal. Yeah, and there's such an emotion on their sleeves. Couple, mm-hmm. you know, they're first of all they're in the sanctity of marriage and all those things. So maybe there's more of an acceptance of kind of showing it. But it certainly seems like the dwarves are just more emotive anyway. They don't have to hide it. It's not an elf human relationship. Right. They, they can be that kind of open, loud, body, wonderful couple that they are. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Exactly. The, but yeah, the um, costume design works so much more than Bronwyn. It's like I don't want to do a direct comparison. They're totally different people. But when you see the attention spent on the single scales made of mother of pearl for Miriam compared to a dirty rag and a spaghetti strap shirt. I'm missing something there. I have a question about the, because I said I've not really been noticing it. Um, The Bronwyn thing. Well, okay, no, no, that's not true. I did notice it in episode four. So this is my question. Did it strike you in episodes one through three? I noticed it. Were you thinking about it then? Yeah, I definitely noticed it. Um, but we hadn't met enough people for me to do a, a more right. comparison. And then it was just as more time went on. And then that one shot where they come through the gates and it was just very striking. And then I started noticing everybody else around her. I'm like, yeah. they're all in the same environment. They're in the same culture. They're in the same weather. Why are they in sheepskin jackets? And she's not. <laughs> yeah. 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 Anyway, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. It was just a thing that irked me. That's making me look at character portrayal. Yeah, um, yeah. Because it's been so thoughtful with everybody else, and I'm no, it's a perfectly fair question. I think it's a, it's yeah. a it's a it's a it's a very reasonable observation. Um, I mean, it's one I'm interested in collecting data about. As I said, the one thing that I can't get away from is the fact that it's. I mean, she is the one, you know, love story love participant that we mm. have, um, uh, and um, yeah, yeah. But um, so I don't know. I don't know yeah, exactly okay. what to uh, we'll put a pin to, in that. But to make know that, that I'm but, yeah. keeping an eye on it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. The arc exactly. of the other women, if we want to branch into that. I mean, Miriam from last episode to this episode. Muriel. Yeah. Uh, Muriel is. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Muriel. I think we yeah. talked about that too. Of just she wasn't likable in the first one, and she was cruel and hard, and then all of a sudden you understand why. And yes. Wow, yes. did that soften quickly, and what a beautiful performance. And like you said at the Palantir, I love that connection of the woman-to-woman, person-to-person. I understand this. Mm-hmm. But then she has to make these difficult decisions as a representative of her nation. That Yeah. Yeah, and of course her very complicated position as the representative of her nation. You know, she can't just do, you know, she can't just, like, decide policy uh, on her own, which, though she then does, actually. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, yeah, yeah, no. So I, yeah, I agree. That was. Um, I'm going to be really interested interested to see where Muriel goes. By the way, one of the things that I don't want to like overlook is the fact that in our interview with Cynthia last Friday, she confirmed that Muriel and Farazan are cousins in the show. Yeah. Which yeah. I was not taking for granted. Of course, they are first cousins in the book, and it's a big deal because he, you know, Farazan is. 
the first cousin who is there, you know, he's the son of the younger son, right? And so that's why he's not king and Muriel is supposed to be the ruler. And so his marriage of her is his usurpation, right? He makes himself king and marries her by force. And it's like creepy and illegal uh, to marry somebody that like, you're not supposed to marry somebody that close akin to you in Numenor. Um, so there's this like sort of obvious transgression that he's doing uh, in in doing that. Um, with the way that they were depicting Farazan uh, and Muriel's relationship. I was absolutely not assuming that the, they, I mean, maybe they were going, I didn't know that they weren't, but I was not assuming they were going to preserve the whole first cousin thing. Um, really we'll fascinated if, to hear that confirmed. But I wonder if they will do. I mean, she knows that. So maybe they know it as part of their own character development, but maybe we won't see it in the show. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it won't be made a big deal of. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I, I suspect it'll come up, but I, I don't... Um, you know, I, I don't think it'll, I don't know when that'll be exactly. Yeah. I'm still not expecting, I still wouldn't really expect that in season one necessarily. Um, but um, yeah. Hmm. See. Sorry, I'm not thinking about, uh, all right. What tangent did you go off on? Okay, Numenor. I'm thinking yeah. about, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking project, like, I, I want to project forward based on what we're seeing with Numenorean politics is hard because we don't have enough data really to be confident about this yet. But like, what trajectory does it look like we're embarking on here with the Numenor storyline alone, right? I still say that it makes most sense to me for the fall of Numenor, for the actual wave to come and swallow the actual island, not in a dream, at the end of episode, at the end of season four. That still is for the pacing of the overall five seasons of the show um, makes most sense to me. Um, uh, because we if season five is going to be the Battle of the Last Alliance, and the downfall of Numenor can't be like butting straight up against the, you know, the Last Alliance at the end. Um, so I I kind of think the end of season four is the reasonable end point uh, of that, which would mean, and I've been saying similarly that that makes season four the Sauron in Numenor season, right? If that's true. What I haven't done though is think through. Okay, so where, what, what, what's going to be, what's going to be the trajectory in Numenor for season two and three? Like, where, what are we building up to for the end of season one in the Numenor story? And then what do we expect to happen in two and three? I think roughly that Farazan would have to seize power in season three. Um. Certainly by the end of season three, Farazan has to be the one in power, um, taking, you know, intervening in the war, taking Sauron captive, that kind of thing, right? Um, so I could see, for instance, Farazan seizing power, like Farazan's coup and the like wedding with Muriel, right, happening at the end of season two, then, okay. perhaps? Um, maybe... I'm Pacing-wise, that makes sense, because she's about to leave the scene and leave him in charge. You know some seeds are going to get sown. Right, right, exactly. And then, so if she, then if season two is the, like, basically when Farazan makes, yeah, like, yeah. when he's making his move, right, and, um, you know, I don't know exactly when she comes back and, you know, exactly how that works, but I don't think she's going to be in Middle-earth for a long time. I'd be surprised mm -hmm. if she's in Middle-earth mm -hmm. for a really long time. Um, 
but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, so I uh, greased watermelon. Yes, we know for sure yeah. there will be only five seasons. Um, they had to pitch the whole five season arc to get the show. So maybe yeah. they'll do a second show down the line. But <laughs> but the story that they have five. pitched. Yeah, this story is is uh, is five seasons for sure. 50 hours is what they, they, they keep saying. 50 hours. Yeah. It's a 50 hour uh, story. Um, so absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that again, it's not to say there's no, there's never going to be anything else, but that would be a different it would be a different story. It would be a it would be a, a, a different. And this thing. took five years to develop and things like that, so it yeah. wouldn't be something that came out quickly. We're we're getting a a closed end to this five year arc. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, oh man, so we've kind of already mentioned it a little bit, and I know we talked about it in Rings and Realms, but like the wave. Yes. The wave. I mean, I want you to talk about the lower side of it, but it, you know how I was talking about like the elevator pitch with the lift and just that gives you a deadline. All of a sudden we know what's at stake and it just gave us a deadline and it gave it so fast yeah. that I yeah. loved yeah. that picking up of pace. I um, was, I was really glad. I mean, of course, on the one hand with almost any of the major you know, uh, 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 text-based events of this show. There's no keeping it. I mean, there's there's not reason to be like no spoilers. Like, don't tell anybody that Numenor sinks into the ocean. Like, everybody who has read Tolkien knows that it's part of the premise of the Lord of the Rings. So, um, uh, I mean, far back in history, but still, it's there uh, as but part not of the story. Knows that. Like, you know, if right. you I know that not every, and so therefore, yeah. there, there could have been like it might have happened, right? It might have happened that they were like, well, we know the Tolkien fans will know, but a lot of people but, won't. So let's kind of put, and and I'm glad they didn't do that, right? That yeah. instead they've made this other choice to to have um, to make sure for everybody, not just Tolkien fans, but for everybody, the wave is looming in the background, right? This future destiny um, with the like hope that maybe it can be averted or something. Muriel is clearly hoping it can be averted. Um, But uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Art of Praise, like, I I don't know about the underwhelmed because I saw the visuals and was very overwhelmed, but definitely knew it was a dream. And the setup with the babies, I mean, it, it had to be. I mean, it was literally like a smashing of new life. Like, here we are at this opportunity of growing as as a kingdom and what better way to show that than a room full of babies uh, and then a giant wave coming in so yeah i knew it was a a a dream but that didn't lessen the impact for me because it was a very prophetic dream and said a lot yeah well and of course again from a you know a tolkien background perspective um that they made the dream like they made the wave a recurring dream sequence is just like oh that's so perfect I mean just knowing that it was actually Tolkien's recurring dream uh, that he ended up putting into his story and impressing this idea of the recurring notion right Um, and by the way just to mention in relationship to that there were really two things that two visual images that Tolkien kept coming back to as like the recurring sort of visions and symbols of the downfall of Numenor. One was the wave and the other is the clouds in the shape of eagles, the eagles of the Lords of the West coming. So these like huge clouds in the shape of eagles coming up from the West. Um, that's, uh, that's the other image that he kept coming back to, especially in his later Numenorean writings. I'm, keenly anticipating the uh, eagle clouds um, but um, 
uh, anyway, so yeah, I, I, I think there's, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I thought that the, the wave that they put it in as a dream, like huge kudos for, uh, them doing that. It's, I, I, so many ways it was, uh, it was delightful. Um, and yeah, Aslan's Compass, you're right. It is a kind of reversal of expectation, isn't yeah. it? With the Eagles as heralds of wrath, which normally they're coming, they're the eucatastrophe, right? They come to the rescue, uh, and for them to come in warning in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm still waiting to see an Eagle. I, this, this, this just to say Eagles in Numenor will be super important. Like if we see an eagle in Numenor, um, like up on the Mental Tarma or flying around the Mental Tarma, if anyone in Numenor looks up and sees an eagle in the sky, it's going to be important. Like that's going to be really meaningful. We've already seen an eagle. Like we saw an eagle flying. Um, remember when Goadriel was searching in the north and we saw Goadriel's people and then the eagle flying out? Um, uh, I, we'll, we'll see more eagles. And then of course we saw the eagle dying in, uh, in the battle scene. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, really long question. Really long question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, lots of things. Yeah. Could Halbrand's pendant represent an eagle on fire? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's one of the things I've been wondering. Um, I'm not sure what to make of Halbrand's symbol. Um, there's clearly bird involved. There seems to be fire involved, though it looks like you know it's it's done in such a way as like it could be feathers, it could be flames, right? Um, and also, it looks like a heart. It's like a family herald. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Some mm-hmm. kind of crest, right? So yeah, like the three things, like the heart, flame, and the eagle, or bird. Anyway, bird uh, seem to be uh, seem to be involved there. What kind of bird it is? Of course, I also can't help but for, can't but remember that um, that really wonderful stone um, relief carving of an what looked like an eagle, uh, terrifying eagle eating people, right? Um, uh, which, in the lands of the former servants of Morgoth, I could easily see them having legends about the eagles that swept down and ate people, um, uh, how they would be terrifying. Um, and, but anyway, so I, that's the, the only other bird iconography we've seen in the Southlands mm-hmm. that I recall. So um, I'm trying to understand it in the context of what we've seen on screen in the Southlands, right, uh, from from them. And that's the only b- bird context I can see. Um, some have pointed out that it looks a little bit like that um, downward-pointing raven that we see in Khazad Doom, right at the top of the lift, when Elrond and, and, and Durin go up the lift in Episode 2. Um, and I agree, there's a certain similarity there. I can't see how there would be a link between, you know, this human Southland king symbol and the dwarves of Khazad-dûm, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. And praise, it might have been a dragon, but I thought it was a bird. I thought it was a bird that it was, it looked, I mean, it was interesting because it looked like it could be feathers or scales the way that it Mm. was carved. Um, But I thought, I thought it was a bird. Um, But it's possible. It's possible that it was, that it was a dragon. Um, But um, Anyway, yeah. So, uh, 
yeah. So I'm still not really quite sure what to do with that symbol. I'm 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 hoping for more. But I well, except I know this. It's obvious that we're supposed to keep it in mind because we were shown it again on screen and in again, episode four. Yeah. yeah. So we've seen it now three episodes in a row on screen uh, yeah. with, uh, you know, more or less lingering on it. Um, so and I yeah. assume when we get to the Southlands, we're going to see it somewhere. You know, I think it's going to be placed somewhere obvious that all of a yeah. sudden we go, oh, dang, you know? Yeah. 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 No, exactly. We're clearly... I, I feel very clearly set up to recognize it when I see it again somewhere else. That's exactly mm-hmm. the cue that I feel like I'm getting there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So, uh, all right, let's try to answer some other questions. Uh, so many questions. Um, okay. Uh, Monopolized. That's okay. Nameless Arcanum was asking, can someone explain where Numenor is in relationship to Middle-earth slash the Southlands? I was under the impression the entire continent of Middle-earth separated the two. No, uh, it does not. Um, so Numenor is, uh, is very far south. Um, you have to sail north from Numenor to get to anywhere in Middle-earth. Um, uh, Numenor is, um, yeah, it's very far south. So if you look at the map or if you remember the map... Um, the best place to look at the map would be in the introductory sequence of Rings and Realms. So if you watch Rings and Realms <laughs> in the intro sequence, you'll but see the map. The map is good. Yeah. And in that map, uh, in that map, what you'll notice is Numenor way down in the lower left-hand corner and all of this like empty area down south of what we know from the Lord of the Rings uh, story. So you've got, you know, even Harad and Umbar are up there and Numenor is further south. So, um... There's a lot of Middle Earth that um, uh, that is which and, and this means a couple of things, by the way. This means that if the Numenorians have been going back to Middle Earth, where they would have gone, like if they just like take a direct route to Middle Earth, um, they could have been interacting with people in Middle Earth and still be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, even from. Um, you know, uh, uh, Tyr Harad there in Proto Mordor, right? Because um, it's, it's way far south of that. Like direct, a direct line, a direct east-west line between Numenor and Middle Earth would contact Middle Earth far south of Umbar, uh, uh, um, of of Gondor. You know, of all the southern of Mordor, It'd be way far south of that. Um, so again, the the mere fa- I think it's suggestive that Halbrand has never even heard of Numenor, like he doesn't even know it exists when he arrives, um, and s- which shows that the Numenorians have not been coming to his part mm-hmm. of Middle-earth in any case. That doesn't necessarily mean that they've never been to Middle-earth, because there's a lot of Middle-earth they could go to that is not has not appeared on camera, even in this show, uh, much less The Lord of the Rings. Um, so, uh, anyway... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so um, the um, so yeah, Numenor, very, very far south. Uh, so that's something that uh, that we should keep in mind. That if they have to go out of their way, like they have to go, they have to sail almost due like northeast, maybe even a little north of northeast, to get up to like Linden, uh, basically to the coast of Linden. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Darren, I'm not making any presumptions yet. Um, Darren says, I'm presuming the show isn't going to isn't going with the idea that Numenor retaught agriculture to men in Middle-earth. I'm not going to make any assumptions. I think we might see elements of that. But I do suspect we're going to jump right to stage two, right? If there's... F- I, I, I put four, four stages. Uh, well, really three. Let's call them three. Three stages of the Numenorean relations with Middle-earth, right? There's the benevolent givers of gift stage. There's the stern rulers who exact tribute stage. And then there's the slavers stage, right? Uh, and I think it's very likely, Darren, that we're going to skip phase one because we don't have as so much time because of the time compression, right? Cause we just, we just don't have that much time. Um, but, um, but I'm not positive. I think we may see some elements of that, but I certainly don't think we're going to get like a, a period of that followed by uh, phase two. I'm kind of thinking Farazan is thinking towards phase two from the get go here. Um, yeah, exactly. Slavers plus human human sacrificers. I was combining those into stage three. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, so, right. Um, it's possible, um, uh, somebody, Rata Tusk the Red, that it's been, uh, there's been a long isolationist period since phase one. But I, I don't see, and we've not had any positive evidence that phase one happened, that there's right. been any contact, uh, regular contact with Numenor. I mean, like, we know that they used to correspond with the elves in Middle Earth. That was mentioned. Um, maybe during that time, back in the days, you know, before the time of Muriel's grandfather's great grandfather, um, there were there were times when they interacted benevolently that phase one already did happen a long time ago. That's possible. Um, and that basically what the show's history is doing is um, putting a, a an isolationist period in between. Right. They were benev- the benevolent gift givers. Then they were isolationists. Nah, then they're going to become, uh, you know, uh, imperial tribute takers. Um, I, I That's possible. That's possible. We haven't seen any clear evidence of that, but um, in which phase is Gondor built? Uh, phase two, uh, phase two and three, basically, because Gondor is built by the people who are running away from the people who are getting worse and worse because um, uh, it was built by the faithful. So um, and that's another question. Like what's going on with the faithful? I feel like I'm I'm excited to see West Numenor. Uh, I, I hope Isildur gets his way and gets to go there so we can see it. Um but, um, but yeah, um, uh, I definitely, um, I definitely think that there's, um, right now it looks like there's a faithful conclave out in West, in West Numenor, um, whether or not they travel to Middle Earth as well, um, and have started to set up, um, you know, places there or not, I don't know. Um, but Londyr and Pelargir are on the map. So, um, if there are not Numenorean ports in Middle-earth, if there have never been Numenorean ports in Middle-earth yet, there will be at some time, uh, presumably not too, not too, um, not too long from now. Yeah. That was kind of a general question of mine of just this Navy is such a big deal and the sea is such a big deal. Who, where are they sailing to? Who are they sailing 
or battling against. Big you know? question of mine too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, like, what are they doing? Like, what does the sea service do? I mean, uh, there has to be a big drive for either protection or exploration, but they seem to not want to actually go anywhere. And they're not fishermen, so it's not like they're training to. Yeah, they don't fish. They don't seem no. to be military either. They don't have weapons. No, but they're training like military. I mean, yes. you know, I mean they're yes. that dedicated. Yeah, no, it, it has a military flavor. But yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. That's one of my big questions. Like we, yeah. you know, the two f elements of Numenorean society that we've seen I mean, outside the royal family is the uh, uh, the guilds and the sea service, right? Yeah. And we really don't know um, uh, what the, like, is, is it protection? Is it exploration? I mean, it could be that. It could be exploration. Um, could be. Trade? It feels it feels military with those uniforms. Definitely. You want to you want to make my squad. You know he's clearly the commanding officer. Yeah. You are below me until you have qualified. There's there's very much a hierarchy. System very there. very much. No, I yeah. totally agree. I totally agree. Um, um, yeah. The like the conversation yeah. between Volandil and I always forget what the other guy, the dopey friend of Isildur, yeah. not the uh, bright spunky curly head friend. Uh, right. But the other one. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, like when they were talking in episode three, right, right after they landed and they were having that conversation about how soon they'll make, you know, given their, yeah. be given their own command and stuff. It totally sounded like, uh, you know, young British boys of the like late 18th, early 19th century going mm -hmm. into the Navy. Like that's absolutely what it sounded like. So I agree. It has it has very much that kind yeah. of military flavor. And yet, um you know, in the British Navy, they had cannon, right? They had guns on the ship. Yeah. Uh, and there's no, there's no evidence of that. They're just sailing. They're just learning to sail. Think, right. Pulling sails in real fast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is great. Like being yeah. good sailors. But yes, it is very much, um, it is very much a question, um, to me what they're doing and I and this is why I'm not willing to jump to the conclusion that there is no connection at all with right. Numenor yet or with between Numenor and Middle-earth yet because exploration and possibly trade therefore to Middle-earth would be a thing that the sea service could would fit with what we've seen um, that it's being done in this sort of militaristic fashion and as part of almost what seems, as I mentioned in episode in my episode three discussion, um, almost like a state religion, practically, right? As I well, mean, that's, kind of, that's kind of the path I'm starting to wonder because I wouldn't have thought about it as religion until you mentioned that in episode three. But their whole foundation is based off of a war and a gift from godlike people, but that was out of their own personal memory. I wonder if this has become. A religious element you learn to sail the sea because right. that was a gift of the gods and we can't go back to having a big bad like we had before so i wonder if they're like doing this as a religious action to constantly be ready to go against the big bad because the mm -hmm. big bad is now this like lower element in their own mind from this collective religious past that we haven't right. engaged with yet because we don't actually know a lot about their you know yeah. what they feel about their history as a community and things like that but Maybe they're just always training for preparation. Yeah. I, I, though they don't seem, there's no, I don't see any evidence of any military preparation of any kind. The, I mean, there were a lot of people who were, true, I, I heard some people saying, 
wasn't it weird that they had to take volunteers for the expedition at the end? But I don't think it's yeah. weird at all. It, it, oh, really? They're... That kind no. of me too. Like, you're going to defend our queen. I'm like, wait, that farmer? Really? Okay. Who else do they have? They have no army. Yeah. Why would they have an army? They, 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 they live in peace in this island that's completely unreachable by anybody else. There's no threats, which is why the sea service can't be to protect the island. There's literally nothing to protect the island from. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. This is, you know, so this is this is a nation which has forgotten about war, which is another reason why I really like the whole guild thing. Right. What do they do? Craftsmanship. Right. That's that's how you gain status. Like becoming a military leader is how you often gain status in a society. Right. Historically speaking. But that's when you have people to fight. Right. And wars that could happen Um, here. There's no there's no there's no war. They've never had wars. They haven't had wars for, you know, thousands of years now. So, um, so yeah. And I, I honestly, I think this is another reason why Farazan says yes to the expedition. Like, okay, let's build a military that could only be helpful. Right. If he feels confident that, um, you know, he and those who side with him are going to be the ones who are going to be able to be in control. Building a military Defending. is, yeah, that's something, yeah. that's something that would be handy, right? And um, Pixelverse yeah. pointed out they call it a sea guard, and I'd forgotten that, but that's exactly right. It is more of a defensive mechanism. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's a little bit weird, but there's only one threat relevant threat that we've seen and that's that worm right which somebody else mentioned maybe there's sees dangerous worm yeah sees dangerous um we know there are corsairs so there are like pirates and stuff but i'm not convinced they make it that far out maybe they do who knows maybe the maybe the corsairs are potentially a problem and they they fight them at sea though again i see no evidence of weapons did did elendils uh, so like the sea guard the cadets are one thing right on a Lendil's ship, when after they pick up Halbrand, did they have weapons? Were they carrying a lot of weapons? I don't remember a lot of weapons in the Numenorean sailors. Somebody look it up. So, somebody look it up and see. <laughs> Let me Google go, it quick. Yeah, just go go like or like scrub through the episode and look at that scene when Galadriel comes out of the hold, right, of a Lendil's okay. ship there at the beginning of episode three. Um, I think Elendil might have had a sword, but I, I, I'm wondering the other sailors, right? I, the captain might wear a sword for some kind of like ceremonial purpose, right? And he's of course given the sword or by like Muriel later basic, on. But sometimes you have to slice a rope on a sailboat, like it would make sense so, for somebody. Having to a have knife a would, yeah, nice. yeah, exactly. <laughs> having a blade would make all kinds of sense. But did the rest of the like that? Did that crew look like they were ready to fight anything? Is my um, question. Art of Prey says they were all wearing armor. Oh, Elendil had Galadriel's dagger. That's right. Yeah, Elendil had Galadriel's dagger, which I definitely, which I definitely noticed. Um, Silver bears a knife. Yeah. I, um, okay. Well, I anyway, they're not carrying spears, and trying not to figure that out. On deck. I mean, did you guys? So I know that a bunch of people, when we were watching it in our watch party, were noticing the mural behind Isildur and Aarion, which seems to show. Um, the worm. It's a sea. It, there, there are waves. It's definitely an ocean scene, and you've got uh, men and an elf. There's an elf in that picture too. You can see the ears with with long pikes, right, attacking the like monster dragon figure. Um, I think it's like a hunt for a worm. Uh, m- you know, 
scene that's being depicted on there, um, which would certainly be one of the great, you know, if there's um, a a great dangerous like feat of daring do that a Numenorian would have to do. They don't have any opponents to war against, right? So they've got nobody to conquer. Um, they've uh, they've got nobody to defend against. But if they're giant dragon monsters in the sea, um, to go after them uh, and and take them down would be praiseworthy, you'd think, mm-hmm. right? Um, would kind of gain you status. And I've been thinking about this ever since we had those lingering shots of the harpoons in the worm. Um, somebody hunts that worm. Um, yeah. Has not hunted it successfully t- to date, um, but um, but somebody hunts it. Uh, and I think that we're definitely... Um, we're definitely so invi- maybe that's one of the thing that the sea guard um, uh, defends against. Okay, so JJ's saying many of Elrond's crew are wearing breastplates, padded jackets, and bracers. So there's arms, there's armor present, but they and they seem to just have knives. Uh, but all of them are worn rather prominently. Okay, okay. But that could also be protective gear. Working on a ship, maybe. I don't yeah. know. There's. Um, anyway, I, I, either yeah. way, it's not like decisive to me. It's like, oh, interesting, all these things. And again, we're back to talking about costuming. Like, all of these things are suggestive, and this one's vague enough for me to not feel like it's meant to be a military operation. Right. But right. it could be. Yeah. 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 Um, I, yeah. Meow, I don't think I can agree with there must be Middle-earth pirates and expeditions trying to explore. No, there mustn't, there needn't be. There needn't be any reason to assume that anyone in Middle-earth, any humans in Middle-earth, have the technology to build ships that can confidently cross all the way to Numenor. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible that it could happen, but I am saying there's no reason to assume that that must be the case. Um, uh not at all. Uh, even the Corsairs appear to be coastal. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, there's a link in the chat that takes you to an image. That's helpful. But yeah, uh, it almost uh, just looks protective rather right. than like. Okay, right, right. See, so, okay, see, there's the. Uh, it's a lovely image. Right. Okay. I wish it were bigger, but yes. Uh, yeah. Breastplates, which look don't they look leather rather than metal? I think they're leather breastplates. I don't know. Sorry, I'm really close to my screen. Sorry if you see my giant forehead. Yeah, I know. I'm. I. I, I could wish. <laughs> I could wish the image were a little larger, but yes, yes. Um, okay, Hard breastplates. To tell. I mean, this almost looks like a concept art anyway, so it's tough to tell. Material. Breastplates, knives. Okay. Okay. Um, interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It's possible. Yeah, Dr. Nosy, I kind of like the idea. Oh, like it's uh, kind of gutsy. It's like the, it's the logical opposite of wearing a life jacket, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you go to sea and everybody has to wear a metal breastplate, right? Um, 
that's when you're uh, that shows you're a confident sailor, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, but um, I think it's they, they, they those look like leather breastplates to me. But um, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. The armor on ship does suggest uh, ju- does suggest fighting. Um, the sea is always right. All of these groups have such interesting chants. Yes. Yes. Nobody walks alone, and the sea is always right. <laughs> um. Um, interesting okay all right Ibrahim at the ending credits of the last episode one of the Turkish voice actors was titled for voice acting for King Finway what I have no explanation for that <laughs> um, I don't know who that is King Finway uh, so he was the f- the first king of the Noldor he's um, Galadriel's grandpa uh, he was killed oh. by Morgoth at the darkening yeah. of Valinor right after the trees get destroyed. Um... Interesting. <laughs> no clue. No clue. I mean, I definitely, yeah, Fanor's father, exactly. The father of Fanor, the father of Finarfin, Goadriel's dad. Yeah. Um, I, um, yeah. Uh... <laughs> You've stumped Corey. No, I mean, I have no idea what yeah, that could that's... mean. I mean, I'm just trying to think. I, I definitely don't think. Okay, no, let me say this positively instead of with lots of negatives. I definitely think it is possible that we will get more flashbacks. Um, I, I don't think we've necessarily seen it all. Um, and I do think that some of the revelations that we get from later on may include um, some new sort of backstory. Um I mean, heck, I'm not, um, I'm not without hope that we'll get more Gilgalad with some background from him, uh, you know, some backstory. Gilgalad, you mean. Yeah. That's exactly what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. That's Which we should have said at the top I mean. of the show. He's yeah, our guest on Twitter to- Spaces tomorrow. <laughs> we totally didn't say that. Yeah. So uh, Benjamin Walker, who plays Gilgalad, is going to be joining us on Twitter Spaces tomorrow. Uh, so we're kind of queuing up questions. I'm hoping we get more Gilgalad in episode five for sure. Me too. Because Me too. Um, I think uh, I think so far, I think poor Benjamin Walker has gotten less screen time than any member of the cast to the to. And, I mean, I'm and tra- the screen. And the screen time he had was pretty like, wait, what? You know, yeah, so you need a exactly. Bit more to work from we had, he had a little bit, only a little bit of screen time, which inspired lots of questions. And we've gotten yeah. nothing again after that. So, um, uh, so yeah, yeah no, maybe. very, very much hoping for. I was hoping for more in episode four. I wasn't just disappointed by what we got in episode four, but I was hoping for more from him in episode yeah. four. I'm definitely hoping for more. Uh, I mean, for we haven't spent four. a lot of time with the elves at all besides Elrond and Celebrimbor, which we should talk about that because that was another really interesting father mention. Yes, absolutely. And there, I think there were some questions about that earlier too, but yeah, really yeah. Oh man, so many, so many questions. Um, so many questions. Uh, yeah. Uh, all right. Do we start at the top or do we start at the bottom? Um, okay. Well, here, which king had a Celebrimbor question? So let's talk about that since you just mentioned that. Um, okay. Do I think? Do we think Celebrimbor's all of a sudden memory of Arendel's words was actually oh, yeah. true? My feeling was he was manipulating Elrond. How much his father matters to him? That is possible. Um, mm. 
I don't think it unlikely, by the way. Like, um, I did not find Calabrimbor's story implausible in any way. Um, I think that that was... Uh, like that that kind of foresight comes upon people like it did to Arendel, apparently, uh, according to Celebrimbor in that story. And even that, you know, it would only be recalled at that moment. Um, I, I, those things feel to me perfectly, um, uh, perfectly appropriate. Like that seems, seems totally fine. Um, however, um, but we're I don't know. suspicious already, right? Like, well, yes. I I'm not suspicious that I don't think Celebrimbor is manipulating Elrond mostly because that would suggest. Okay, so like if we imagine like the stages of Celebrimbor, right? There's like Celebrimbor as like an earnest and well-meaning craftsman and then there's Celebrimbor who has met Anatar and um, Anatar has talked him into this new Rings of Power plan right um, which is not great but again it's not done with an evil motivation right Celebrimbor is deceived he really believes that what he's doing is going to be a good thing right and then he discovers who Anatar really is and repents of that and everything right so you've got the uh, like disillusioned Celebrimbor at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but at no point in his trajectory is Celebrimbor a, like, scheming, malicious person, right? And I'd be surprised if Celebrimbor were made into a scheming, malicious person. Um, praise I absolutely believe. Uh, well, I would say absolutely believe. I think it very likely that we're in phase two with Celebrimbor already. I think that... Ke I mean, it, in fact, it seems to me almost a logical necessity because... His he seems to have even the way that he introduced his plan to um, Elrond in episode two, right? The scene with with Fanor's hammer and everything, right? Where he mm -hmm. says, "I want to, I want to, um, you know, I want to do this thing, right? I want to, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to leave my mark. I'm not content to merely, you know, please people. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to make an impact. I want to." You know, his 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 ambitions. I think um, I think that that's um, that seems to reflect the rings of power plan that he's that he's already had. I, I so, yes, I still think Sauron is already there. I still think that we have just not yet um, that the, re the revelation of where Sauron has actually been during season one, I still think it's going to be when at the end of the season, Celebrimbor is like, oh, and did I, did you meet my new research assistant, Anatar? Right? Like, I still right. think that's, you know, I know you haven't met him yet, Elrond, but, um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, here he is. I, I think that that's, that's already happened. But do I think he's at a place where he's actively trying to deceive Elrond in some way? No, I don't think so. I don't think he's... Because the whole point with Celebrimbor is that he... He doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. Like, he really believes. You know, he is genuinely deceived by Anatar uh, in this way. So, um, and Sarah, it absolutely would explain the ready by spring urgency. The ready yeah. by spring line is the one more than anything else that makes me think that Sauron is already there as Anatar because there's only one person in all of Middle Earth who has a time 
frame, right? Who has a time scale, and that's Sauron. He's got a he's got he's got a plan, right? Um, he's moving all of his things into place, uh, and um, there's nobody else who is operating on a timetable except for Sauron. So yes, I I do think that that comes from Anatar. I don't know what Anatar's reasoning was to convince Celebrimbor yeah, it had to be done by spring, but you know that I think we could learn um, later on. But we'll uh, find out. yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, yeah. So, um, yes, Timothy, I absolutely do think that the shot of Celebrimbor's tower looks kind of like the Tower of Babel. Um, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Uh, the, the whole Babylon connection there. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, and it fits very well, doesn't it, with that speech that I was just alluding to from Celebrimbor, where he's like, I shall make my name great on the earth, right? You know, uh, it, by accomplishing this great thing that nobody has ever done. So yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's a, a strong, um, uh, t- not to mention the dwarves and elves coming together, right? To build in harmony, uh, mm. um, you know, before there's going to be a division, uh, you know, of the nations uh, after. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Does uh, track, Um so I, I like that. Um, oh, so as for um, um, uh, oat, oat, oats, oats, um, why, uh, why does Sauron have a timeline? Well, he's, I, he's got a plan. Like, he's a planner. He's got a, I mean, uh, at some point, Orodruna is going to blow up, right? We're going to have a volcanic eruption. He's reclaiming Mordor. Right. Um, he is putting his lieutenants in place in order to rule the people like he's um, it's his own timetable. I'm not saying he's playing to somebody else's timetable. Right. But there's one person who is like controlling multiple things going on in different parts of the continent all at the same time. Right. And and sort of, moving, you know, he's um, he's got his plan for world dominion and he's got a checklist right leading up to uh you know the accomplishment of his world dominion goal and uh uh and you know certain things need to happen in a certain order or else it's not going to go well so um uh yeah yeah absolutely um yeah um so yeah we'll see they are coming in really fast um (laughs) But but yeah so but back to the father thing with Arundel. Um, yeah. First of all, just the opportunity. Elrond's story of Arundel was really moving. I thought, um, you know, as he recounted like the tale of Arundel and then Arundel being up in the stars and everything. Um, to get in that same episode a recollection of somebody who just knew him, you know before he was the evening star, right? Uh, somebody could just recall him and be like, you know, yeah, you look so much like your dad. I mean, Elrond, um, you know, it was a question even of how much he would have known, how well he would have known his father, um, how long his father was around, um, especially because, again, according to the only stories that we have, Arendel was very frequently off on voyages, um, mm-hmm. uh, exploring and doing other various things um so uh so anyway yeah i i think that um there's um um it was it was really nice just to have this sort of a recollection of the fact that a rendell was a guy before he was a star <laughs> right that he was uh that he was just somebody that 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 people knew um 
Yeah. Um, Jacob Pizzi, I don't know if we've seen the Evening Star yet. Um, I don't remember seeing it. I don't remember it being made a huge deal yet. Um, but, um, but I'm expecting it now. We've gotten lots of from Sadok and now from Elrond himself in episode four. I'm expecting there will be at least one significant evening star scene uh, before the end of the season. But That'd be lovely. Yeah. Be a nice payoff. Right. Especially with the emphasis on stars from the, mm-hmm. um, from the Harfoot uh, storyline with the stranger and everything. Um, okay. Um, right. Okay. So Alan, you were asking about that, of which we just answered. Do we think, uh, um, Sauron is already engaged in turning Kilobrimbor to his cause? Yes, I do. Um, Namus Arcanum, is Galadriel actively rebelling against the Valar at this point in the show? Low key, but yes, I actually do think, I think she's been from the beginning actually. Um, it's not just from when she jumped off the boat. Um, I think there's, you know, we are we are, our attention is being drawn explicitly to the fact that the Numenorians, like especially Farazan, when he makes his, like, we are from the house of Elros Tarminyatar, who overthrew Morgoth and, like, did everything all by themselves, right? That's obviously, obviously uh, a huge rewriting of history that glamorizes the Numenorians and their ancestors as the heroes. Going along, presumably, with the We Were Given Nothing speech from Muriel back in episode three. Like, those are clearly part of this same cultural myths of Numenor. Um, I think that Galadriel's story um, is just as conspicuous um, we didn't have anything to contrast it with. Um, but once we started getting all of those Valar references in episode three is when it really came down to me. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think that the absence of references to the Valar in the prologue now is sounding to me like a, like a Galadriel story. Um, I think that she's bitter. I think that she's bitter that they didn't help sooner. Um, remember it's almost, in fact, it's almost the same the same kind of cultural myth. Farazan makes it sound like the Edain took handled Morgoth single-handedly, right? Doesn't even doesn't even credit the Valar with an assist, right? Mm. Galadriel does almost the same thing. Remember when she describes the darkening of Valinor in that pre in that pro and then she says, But some of us resisted, right? Some of us. Some of us also sat on their hands and did nothing, nothing. Valar, right? Mm. But we you know, we suited up and we went there and we fought the war, right? And then he was finally defeated. She does not credit the Valar for coming and saving the day. Um, To the extent that I was, at first, I was like, okay, because it's the only thing we have in the prologue of the first episode, right? I'm like, so am I to understand that the Valar did not, in fact, intervene in this show? Are we just skipping that entirely? But it's now explicit that is not the case. Elrond said the Valar came and and, and did this, right, when he's telling the Arendelle story. Um, So between episodes three and four, it is clearer and clearer that Goadriel's version of the story is very slanted. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and many people have pointed out that Goadriel gives a similarly slanted version of the story of the rebellion of the Noldor when she first tells it to Melian in the Silmarillion. Um, we have some we have some precedent for this. 
Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I think there's, um, I think there's some, anyway, lots of reasons to doubt that. And I, I now doubt almost, like everything Galadriel said as much as, like, it's almost in the same category as Farazan's version of that. But she knows better. She was there. Right. Um, Farazan, at least, is just repeating a cultural myth that's been handed down for generations and been slanted in this particular direction for, you know, the last, what, five or six generations. Right. Um, Galadriel, there's like personal bitterness still involved there um, that is that is leading her to uh, um, to to do that. But anyway, like um, I like this point that Ivana's got of, you know, I wonder if Adar and Galadriel will meet and question it. I don't know who it's going to be, but I, I do wonder when we'll have that realization because it's it's been very subtle, but it sounds yeah. like it's incredibly important. So there will at some point be this moment where we realize that Galadriel is not a reliable storyteller for us. Yes. And and, and I think how they reveal that's going to be really interesting. Yeah. And that's true, actually. I hadn't even really thought about those two stories in conjunction in that way. But mm. Adar's talk about like you have believed many lies. Yeah. Right? has a lot of resonance in this way, right? Yeah. Now, like, I, Adar, I think, is, I'm pretty sure, is crazy. And, you know, I'm not saying that Adar's alternate version of the truth is the real version. But his character is definitely introducing to us this concept. There are multiple versions of this story, right? Um, so especially if we put those three things together, in episode four alone, right, we got... Um, Farazan's Numenorean myth version of what happened at the end of the first stage. We have Elrond's, right? Eärendil's uh, uh, son uh, version of what happened at the end of the first stage. And then we have Adar's hints of the fact that there's a totally different story that he believes um, that is in complete contradiction to those two. Um, none of them, none of those three versions are explicitly. Um, talking about Galadriel's version, right? But it certainly now does place that prologue um, within the context of these other um, versions of the story. And, and the, the, um, it is Adar who points us to the fact that we need to be careful in evaluating what version of the story we're listening to. Again, that doesn't mean I think that his version of the story is the correct one. Uh, I'm just saying that he's, he's raised that issue, right? Um, he's he's he, he's raised that issue, and I think that that's um, a really important thing to think about. Yeah, the um, the more I think about it, the more kind of amazing I think it would be. Because I mean, everybody was talking about how the prologue of episode one, um, you know, was this clear sort of callback to Goadriel, the Goadriel narrated prologue of the Fellowship of the Ring, right? right. And uh, the way that it kind of anchored that, if they first create that effect, right? That anchoring effect with the to the Peter Jackson prologue. And then it turns out that was unreliable, right? And in fact, like, you know, uh, most of what we learned in that prologue turns out to be wrong. Oh, man. Like, that is that is a gutsy, gutsy move. But actually seems to me kind of in keeping with some of the other ways in which they're connecting to Peter Jackson's uh, movies. Um, I think there are a bunch of places where they've that, kind of... Yeah. Yeah, and that's really um, comfortable. You know, it's it's a nice illusion to have because we do know this character well. Yes, it would be jarring to go against that in some spaces. So it's nice to have that. Yeah, yeah, but no, I think, um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh man, we're running out of time. 
<laughs> Every time. <laughs> so many questions. Um, several people asking about language. Um, okay. I don't know either. Um, lots of I have lots of questions about the language. Um, like the main question people are asking is why is everybody speaking Quenya? I don't know why everybody's speaking Quenya. Um, uh, I'm holding out to see how that might be integrated into the story as we move forward. Um, Arondir, it would seem, should not be speaking Quenya. Like, why is Arondir speaking Quenya? Um, he's not only he's a Sylvan elf. Like, he's he's. Um, even people who were speaking Quenya were the Noldor from Valinor who were speaking Quenya. Like, that's their language. Um, Rondir would seem to be, like, twice removed from that. Um, but, um, anyway, I, I, um, uh, so yeah, I was confused by that. Or I, I don't know the answer to that. Other than it's, it's clearly a deliberate choice. Um, and I'm going to be interested to see how they position it. It's it's. I feel like we're going to need a big picture uh, for that. You know, it may not become clear for a couple of years exactly what the overall trajectory, what they're doing with Quenya and Cinderin, and how they're used. And, and maybe there will be a shift. I don't know. Um, uh, I will be interested to see that. But um, um, why can't Arondir be a Noldo? Well, I mean, he's identified within the show. He hasn't been identified in dialogue um, as a Sylvan elf, um, but everything that everything official that's been released says so. By the way, on Amazon Prime, <clears throat> you know those X-ray blurbs? Like you know, you pause the thing and the pictures of the actors show up and the little X-ray blurbs. Read those if you've been if you've not read them. Read them; they're interesting, actually. I have not. They're they're like I I so I because I keep pausing it uh, and going back and playing bits and pausing it when I'm you know I like taking notes and everything so it keeps I keep seeing a few of them they're like really interesting quotations from the book with citations and they um, so there's 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 there, there's a lot of quotes um, some interesting explanations like for instance they confirmed that. There is, like, in West Numenor, there's, like, an enclave of, like, people who live in West Numenor. Like, they actually gave information that was not made explicit in the episode. So, like... So there's, like, a whole, like, special features track of... Sort of, yeah. Well, just, like, yeah. So just, like, pause it and then click on the... uh, Touch the blurb, right? The little blurb. And it'll show you all the blurbs. You can scroll through all the blurbs and it'll take you to the scene that it's commenting on and everything. I've only watched it on my TV. So I guess I have to do it on a screen that I can interact with more easily. It's easier there. I think you can do it on your TV, too. If you pause, they'll show up, I think. But anyway, definitely look at it on your phone. And uh, um, I I was actually noticing this when I was on on set last week because I, I often um, you know there are times in Rings and Realms when they're like fixing stuff on the digital wall and everything and I'm sitting there in my chair waiting for us to do our next take and I got my phone and I'm, I, I got the episode on my phone and I'm like oh yeah let me rewatch this scene to make sure I'm getting the line right and everything so uh, I'm doing and that's when I was I was I, I started scrolling through and I'm like oh. I want to read all the x-rays it's really but anyway then, so there's lots of stuff there. Oh my god I could go off on a tangent for this forever like what a crazy production decision to do that because that's yeah. like a lot of work it was. Oh, it was. And again, there's, there's like there was a quotation. There was a there was a citation to Appendix F in the X-ray of Episode Four. Like it's there's like it's it's there's some really interesting stuff there. Wow. Um, so yeah, yeah. I just 
just look at the X-rays. They're cool. Uh, there's some there's some there's some solid uh, Tolkien stuff too uh, s- stuff in there, uh, and it's and it's interesting. So. Um, yeah, yeah. I know, I know I know it's common for Amazon Prime shows. I've seen it for many things that I've watched on Prime because I've watched a lot of them on like my phone or iPad, but um uh but anyway, yeah. Um it's um it's it's pretty cool. Um okay. Man, so much stuff. Um Okay. Um I'm like, this is me doing my, like, do we have time to answer even one question? And I if know, so, like, which? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I was also uh, going to say, if you have yeah. questions that you want us to ask tomorrow. Yeah, that would be, that, that would be the most That would be really thing. helpful, but I also feel like we haven't seen much, so. It's really whatever, hard. It's yeah, really hard, yeah. I mean. Now, I feel like we might just blow out of the water tonight, hopefully, with new content, so. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I guess we can kind of wait to have that conversation until after the after the show tonight um yeah okay so we'll um we'll we'll see uh we'll see about that we'll kind of wait on that perhaps um but um man so much more to talk about um i hit on a bunch of things that i want to hit on i'm now going to totally be watching Bronwyn's top and see how that progresses over the course of the rest of the, of the, rest of the show. Of her costume. The top of, of her, her costume, costume is what right, I'm saying. It. Yes. But you're you're yeah. going to notice it now. So yeah. And I, I mean, it's making me notice everybody else too. Like it says mm-hmm. so much, but anyway, we'll keep an eye. But I feel like this was one of our more like scattered episodes of discussing because I just feel like there's, there's so much that happened in this one, but I do feel like this is one of the most cohesive episodes. Yeah. You know, so like as scattered as we are, it's because things are finally starting to take off in lots of different directions. But this one felt stronger for me. And I thought the performances were a bit better. And there's still some dialogue I'm really struggling with. But overall, I'm like a lot of this started to hit its groove. I felt like episode four was for sure the strongest episode um, just as a whole. I mean, it was there was I mean, I. There's been stuff I've been really interested in, um, mm-hmm. but um, uh, but man, episode four was really really uh, powerful. Um, so we'll see. And lots of questions. You know, we can't answer. You know, most we can't answer yet. Um, but that's more on about... Twitter too. We do try to answer over there too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we can keep the conversation going there. Um, so do feel free to join me. So a couple things that are going on here this evening. Uh, of course, we have the uh, watch party as usual. So I'll be... I'm going to um, make it this time. I'm in the right time zone. Oh, awesome. Good. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we can... Uh, uh, maybe you can join me on screen if you want to join me on screen for reactions as we go. So... Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, so we'll be we'll be doing the watch party and then some immediate discussion. I do like immediate processing afterwards, um, and then uh, we'll do our of course our Twitter Spaces in which we will get to interview Benjamin Walker on Friday at noon. Um, in between, actually, there's also another special thing this week. So because today it's Bilbo's birthday, right? It's uh, it's Hobbit Day today. Happy Hobbit Day. Exactly. So having a having a special event this evening at 8 p.m. Uh, where I'm going to be doing a, a special reading, and uh, we're going to have I'm, we're going to do some discussion. I'm going to look at concerning hobbits, and we're going to talk about Shire culture. 
culture. Um, and I'm, I'm going to want to do some comparison and contrast with Harfoot culture as well. So we're going to be, uh, it can be concerning Harfoots. We're going to, uh, we're going to, we're going to be thinking about both the hobbits in the Lord of the Rings text and, uh, and then also the Harfoots as well. Um, kind of combining the two projects I'm working on at the same time, writing my book on book one of the Lord of the Rings and, uh, and thinking about the rings of power. So we're going to talk about both those things and get an update about what's coming up this fall from the new Signum University Press. So um, that will also be happening at 8. So that's at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, join us here on the same whatever channel you're watching right now. Uh, we'll, I'll be broadcasting here again um, at 8 p.m. tonight uh, for that. Uh, and then we'll be back at midnight for the watch party. So, yeah, two hours until the Hobbit, uh, Hobbit Day broadcast and then four hours until the show uh, no six hours until the show comes out so there we go awesome thanks everybody and uh we'll see you guys around later today bye now bye.